You're listening to the Perch Pod from Perch Perspectives. Hello, listeners. Welcome to another episode of the Perch Pod. As usual, I'm your host. I'm Jacob Shapiro. I'm also the founder and chief strategist of Perch Perspectives, which is a human-centric business and political consulting firm. Rumors of my demise during Hurricane Ida, which hit us here in New Orleans, are much exaggerated. We're doing okay. We lost a tree in the yard and had to escape to Starkville, Mississippi, aka Stark Vegas for a while. It was a lovely trip, um, but I'm back. We have electricity, we have air conditioning, and we have joining us Emma Ashford, who's the resident senior fellow with the New American Engagement Initiative in the Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security. She is also a non-resident fellow at the Modern War Institute at West Point. Um, Emma's work focuses on questions of grand strategy, international security, and the future of U.S. foreign policy, and she was kind enough to let me pepper her with a number of different questions that were on my mind and um, even allowed me to ask two um, off-the-wall questions at the end of the interview about Scotland and about U.S. military interventions. Emma and I recorded on Friday, September 24th in the afternoon. This will come out in about a week, a week and a half, so I think it will be fairly present, but um, some things could happen, particularly around the France, US, Australia sub-issue, so just keep in mind we're only responsible for things up to September 24th. Um, otherwise, all the usual stuff applies. Check us out at perchperspectives.com. There's the free newsletter. There's the Latin Politic newsletter. Um, leave a review if you are so inclined. Write to us at info at perchperspectives.com if you have any comments, questions about this podcast itself. Um, take good care. Hope you're all enjoying the turn to fall weather here in the United States, and I will see you out there. Cheers. Great. Emma, thank you so much for making some time to come on the podcast. It's a real pleasure to host you. It's always nice to meet someone that you know online uh, and actually in, in person, at least virtually. Yeah, uh, COVID has had the effect that, uh, you know, in the past, I would have been afraid to reach out to you or anybody else who's been on the podcast online. And COVID is just, I threw it out the window. I just, I, I send people messages if I like their work. And sometimes they say yes, like you, and sometimes they ignore me and I'm no worse for the wear. So there it is. Um, it's certainly been a, a good time, but uh, from from that point of view. Yeah, <laughs> silver lining. Um, but the, the reason I wanted to reach out to you most specifically was because you just had a piece come out um, in Foreign Affairs, Strategies of Restraint, and we'll have it linked in the podcast for our listeners. Um, and there are a number of different ways I'd love to tackle the, the piece that you wrote and your views on American foreign policy right now, especially the transition from Trump to Biden. But I, I think the first place I wanted to start was just um, you, you sort of build this idea of restraint as an alternative foreign policy approach in U.S. foreign policy. And I I wanted to ask you, how is how is what we're going through today in the United States different than, say, what was happening in the 1970s? Because there seem to be some very clear similarities to me in the sense that a major war was lost. There's a, a huge lack of trust between the electorate and a, and a presidency. Uh, and yet, I don't think anybody would have described Nixon and Kissinger and the things that they did as restrained. They were realist or pragmatic or some other thing. So I, I was struggling with that, and I just wanted to start there and ask, where is it similar and, and where is it different, do you think? Yeah, so that's, that's a really good question. Um, and I think, you know, one of the one of the things that it's getting at is the fact that this really isn't a new debate. Um, it is a debate that has resurfaced in U.S. foreign policy about sort of what the U.S. should prioritize in terms of interests or values, um, how far the U.S. should, should take 
that in trying to sort of how far the US should use military means to do that, other means to do it. Um, and so, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a conversation that has resurfaced in the last few years, thanks to rise of China, failures of the war on terror, um, you know, just all the stuff that we've seen in the last um, decade or so, um, back to the financial crisis. Um, but this is a debate in American foreign policy that runs at least as far back as the founding. Um, you know, if you go back and, you know, you look at George Washington's farewell address, you'll see him cautioning against entangling alliances and getting over-involved in sort of European colonial struggles. Um, you know, Jefferson said similar things later on. And so I'm not one of those people that thinks that we have to do absolutely everything the founders said, um, but it's a good, it's a good way of emphasizing that this isn't a new debate. It's just that during the post-Cold War period, that pendulum swung really out of whack in the direction of sort of American primacy, liberal internationalism, overreach, and now it's starting to, to come back a little. And I think, you know, that's why the 1970s part of this is really interesting, because, you know, I think in the 1970s, we did see this kind of re-equilibration, re, re right? We see the overreach from the war in Vietnam, we see Nixon and Kissinger try to not just wind that in, but also adapt to the realities of a changing world. So the 70s are where we see those first big um, rewriting of that post-war system, right? The collapse of some of the Bretton Woods institutions. We see um, Kissinger and then Nixon going to China and trying to break up that Soviet China block. Um, and you're right that those are realist moves and, and they were realist at the time, um, but they were the same thing, right? They were bringing U.S. foreign policy a little back into balance after some years of, of overreach. And so that's, I see that restrainers today, which include realists, as trying to do broadly the same thing. Where uh, I was also interested in your article, and I wanted to ask where exactly neocons fall on the spectrum, because you, to me, you you, conspicu you conspicuously left them out because you talked about liberal internationalists and America first and restraint, realist, and the neocons just kind of got kind of got a, they kind of got left out. And in some ways, they're I don't want to blame it all on them because it's a structural problem and we can't blame individuals for structural problems. But in some ways, they're the ones that took it off the rails because they decided that U.S. foreign policy and values and unilateralism should all go together in a cocktail that gave us Iraq and the never ending war in Afghanistan. So um, where, is, is it a subset of liberal liberal internationalism or is it somewhere else on on the spectrum? Yeah, so maybe I should have included a line in the article explaining why I didn't bother to mention neoconservatives, um, but it's basically because they have been effectively jettisoned from the conversation over foreign policy. Now, elements of things that the neoconservative coalition supported are still there, um, but it's not all together in one big package anymore. Um, and so some of those sort of the liberal hawks that, you know, allied with neoconservatives, um, you know, even as late as, as, you know, the intervention in Libya, um, they've mostly backed away from the idea of sort of humanitarian intervention now. Um, and the kind of America first um, US military primacy folks, who again, would have probably been neoconservatives back in the day, they've backed away from the democracy promotion, you know, it's all about universal values part of it. And so there is still a small cadre of people, um, you know, that, that you might call neoconservatives. Um, but my impression is they are not as influential on the debate as they used to be. Um, and, and in fact, that there's really no political faction that they align with at this point. 
I hope you're right about that, because I got sick and tired of seeing John Bolton being trotted out by the previous administration, because for all of Trump's, you know, restraint um, or you know things that make him seem like a restrained president, I mean, Bolton was right there. He was in the room. He's writing the book afterwards. He still goes on TV. It feels like every other week trotting out the same nonsense. But Bolton's not a neoconservative, and he oh, never no? really was. No, uh, this is one of those like tiny little minuscule debates that people Great. that really care have. Um, that, but that, it's, um, that, that's what I'm here for. Let's do it. <laughs> Bolton is a, a nationalist, a unilateralist, nationalist, conservative, um, you know, whatever you want to call it. There's a lot of different names for it. But mm -hmm. Bolton was never all in on the sort of freedom project mm. of the neoconservatives. Instead, he was more in it. If you look at what he actually did during the Bush era, it was things like, um, you know, trying to get the US out of international institutions. Mm -hmm. um, it was trying to push back on the United Nations because he doesn't believe in multilateral um, organizations and because he believes US sovereignty should override them. So, you know, I mean, as much as I dislike John Bolton and I dislike his ideas, um, you know, I think he is sometimes portrayed a little unfairly by people who say he was one of the neoconservatives when really, um, I think Bolton is actually a lot closer to Trump um, in the kind of worldview that he espoused. Um, and, you know, the perhaps more worrying, I feel like the worldview that the Republican Party is increasingly steering towards looks pretty close to John Bolton's worldview. Um, and that's that's kind of terrifying. Yeah, it's a depressing thought. Um, <laughs> but I have to. Uh, Sorry. But, no, no, that's fine. That's fine. We'll 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 find a silver lining in there somewhere. Um, and I I normally don't let myself speak so off the cuff about about politicians like that. But I, I just feel like Bolton has been on the wrong side of basically every foreign policy decision he's had anything to do with for 20 years. So I don't feel bad kind of ragging on him a bit. But maybe a really good example of this, and maybe you can kind of situate how the Trump administration was dealing with this and how the Biden administration is dealing with this um, is the situation in Venezuela. Because that's one instance where I would argue the Trump administration was not restrained at all. Um, it was kind of cavalierly aggressive in a sense. And it was very much, it, it almost felt like deja vu. It felt like it was two decades ago and we were hearing about democracy and the Venezuelan people are going to overthrow the dictator and all they need is the hand-picked you know, U.S. guy with the U.S. money who's going to come in and give them peace and democracy. And I feel like Bolton was one of the ones really pushing that behind the scenes and that in general, the Trump administration, I mean, and this was the other thing about Trump, they would go right up to the edge and then Trump would wake up the next morning and be like, no, nah, I don't really want to do that. So we're going to go right to the edge of war with North Korea and then, no, nah, I don't want to do it. We're going to go right to the edge of intervening in Venezuela. I'm not going to do it. So w where does the Venezuela thing fall on that spectrum? And how do you see that the Biden administration has changed its approach? And what does that tell you about the direction they're trying to take things? So, um, I mean, I will say, I, I think Venezuela is one of the clearest examples in the Trump administration of that sort of holdover of neoconservative tendencies, um, that and Iran. Mm -hmm. um, and you could see, particularly on Iran, you could see how Trump's own instincts, um, you know, he really disliked Iran. He wanted to hurt them. He wanted to put sanctions on them. Um, but I think, you know, if Iran had offered to come to the negotiating table, I think Trump would probably have done it just like he did with North Korea. And that's not what the people inside his administration wanted. And I think that was the same dynamic that we saw in Venezuela. People in his administration, John Bolton, but also Elliot Abrams, mm -hmm. right, you know, pushing this agenda that was, you know, was partly human rights and democracy, but but as much about the fact that they really disliked you know, the, the Bolivarian regime in Caracas, um, that there's this tortuous history with it, um, you know, and that they would be happy to see it out of power. 
Um, and so, you know, as you say, they, they took a very active role there, um, you know, aggressive sanctions, um, trying to build up international, um, you know, I guess, bad will against against Venezuela and then potentially some other stuff that happened in the shadows that we don't really know about yet. Um, you know, I mean, I haven't been following the Venezuela situation particularly closely under the Biden administration. Um, I do think it's interesting more broadly that the Biden team are doing this sanctions review. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suspect that Venezuela may be one of the places where we see, you know, if if the Biden team does change course a little on sanctions, Venezuela is one of those places where I suspect we might see the sanctions ratcheting down a little um, because they have had these really bad humanitarian effects. And that's one of the things that the Biden review is meant to actually be looking at in the context of sanctions policy. But I haven't been following the situation closely, I'll admit. Yeah, no, but that that's a great segue in, into sort of the next major question I wanted to pose to you, which is, I mean, let's stop talking about people like John Bolton. Where is where is Joe Biden on the spectrum? Because Joe Biden going in, I admit I was a bit nervous because in the same pages of Foreign Affairs, if you read some of his past articles, felt a little neocony, especially the way he would talk about Russia and calling Putin a gangster who's threatening liberal democracy all around the world. The United States has to be the beacon and the shining hill, all that kind of language. I think he actually has been more restrained than I expected coming in, but he seems to have that same sort of impulse. He would have been one of those liberal hawks in the late 90s and the early 2000s. And I don't really have a good sense of whether he knows what he is, whether, as you say, he's just trying to review all the damage that was done in the previous years and is trying to then you know, figure out where he wants to step from there. What do you think his impulse is and, and, and where would you put him on, on that spectrum of liberal internationalism, America first and restraint that you diagram? Well, I mean, Biden was one of those liberal hawks. It's not just that he would have been, he actually was, right? He voted in favor of those wars. Um, You know, even if you go back into the 90s, voted in favor of the Balkans wars, was pretty active on those. I was reading some stuff a couple of weeks ago, NATO enlargement, um, you know, and I just happened to run across Senator Biden in a hearing that I was reading. um, And he's referring to people that oppose NATO expansion as isolationists, right? So he was very much with the zeitgeist during that period. Um, but that is kind of how I think Joe Biden considers foreign policy more generally, which is that he follows the sentiment of the times. That's my impression. Um, and that's why we're seeing this slightly more restrained. I would hesitate to say he's a restrainer um, or even maybe a realist, but we're seeing a more restrained policy from him because that's where that's where public opinion is. That's where even some of the elite opinion is going. And so I think that's why we've seen these moves from him, like dialing down in Afghanistan, like conducting these reviews, sanctions, you know, force posture. Um, and, and in terms of like where his administration is going. So I think he's I think he's a liberal internationalist, but with like realist tendencies. Um, you know, he's aware of the mistakes that have been made and doesn't want to just double down on those mistakes. Um, and, and honestly, being a pragmatist like that, I think there, there could be many worse ways to approach this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've been relatively, um, I, I've been um, somewhat impressed with his foreign policy. I thought it would be a lot worse than, than it has been. Yeah, I, I, my line has been that he's surpassed my low expectations so far. But yeah. one one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot, and then going back to the first question I asked you, because I, I was, it's interesting you said the thing about him going along with the sentiment of the times, because it seems to me one of the major differences between, say, what Nixon was trying to do when he was resetting the deck and what Biden is doing when Biden is resetting the deck is that um, 
I wouldn't say that there was a groundswell of American opinion that wanted to open up relations with China. I'm not even sure that was on Americans' radar. Certainly, Americans wanted peace in Vietnam, and Nixon knew that he needed to deliver peace in Vietnam. But I would argue that what he did with China was very independent-minded, was very separate, and in the end, he sort of pulled the nation along with him rather than letting sentiments draw him to his his policy. Um, Biden, as you said, it seems to be the sentiment of the times and the sentiment of the times, especially in the United States. I mean, one of the only things Americans seem to be able to agree on right now, disturbingly to me, is that China is bad and China is a threat and we're all going to unite to fight the next war against China. I mean, that, that's really how it kind of feels when you're listening to both sides of the aisle talk about these things. And I haven't seen Biden really dial that down. I mean, there's now dialogue at the highest levels between the U.S. and China. That's better than before. But other than that, I mean, they're hammering on all the issues. They're opening up trade negotiations with with Taiwan. Um, it, it feels in that sense that Biden's being pulled along rather than driving. Do you think that's fair or do you think that I should walk that back a little bit? No, I, I think that actually sounds pretty, pretty fair to me. I mean, I think one of the reasons why there was this groundswell of support, you know, so there was the public opinion side of it on Afghanistan and the war on terror, but there was also an elite groundswell toward getting out of the war on terror so that we could pivot to China. Um, and so I think that altogether is what gave you that big support for it that let Biden withdraw from Afghanistan. Um, and, you know, from some of the moves his administration has taken, it's clear um, that, you know, Biden personally, um, you know, I'm not 100% sure he's made up his mind on the China question, but in the administration, there are definitely people who, um, you know, who are fairly determined to sort of pivot the US to Asia properly this time, unlike in the Obama administration, um, and who to guard China as this major threat um, that has to be dealt with. Um, you know, and so I think, I mean, there are also um, more, again, I don't, I don't want to say restrained voices, but there are, there are more cautious voices inside the administration. Um, but it's not clear right now which faction is going to come out on top. And so from, you know, I think Biden, in terms of getting swayed by what's popular, by what everybody around him thinks, um, you know, I do think that he might well, you know, take a harsher line on China, um, you know, if, if that's how the administration process shakes out. Mm -hmm. And and to follow on that thread, I, I thought um, one of the, the most complex things that you tackled in your piece was trying to define how a restraint-based foreign policy would deal with a challenge like China. Um, and it's not clear to me how that happens. Um, and it's also one of the differences with the 70s, because you know, the U.S. then was, was not pivoting towards another competition with another power. It was about resetting the deck in a more multipolar world and becoming more globally competitive. And in the way you just said it, you know, pivoting from Middle East war to East Asia war or China war, I mean, that that doesn't feel very restrained. That just feels like you're arming up for the next kind of battle. And it almost feels like if you're really going to be restrained, you almost have to you have to counteract that aggressiveness towards China and try and build some kind of structure where you're not going to have to go defend Taiwan or you're going to figure out really clearly what that means and how far you're willing to go and all those other sorts of things. So I'm rambling a little bit, but. Talk to me a little bit about how somebody in that restraint-based camp has to think through sort of all these complicated issues when it comes to China. So one of the things that I that I talk about in this article is, you know, what what is the definition of restraint, right? Because it's just thrown around in Washington, and you know, it can mean a bunch of different things. Um, and one of them is this, you know, one of them is a grand strategy, right, which has very specific prescriptions. Um, you know 
Barry Posen was the guy that wrote a book on it. And, you know, it would call for a much less confrontational approach to China. Um, but the broader kind of restraint coalition includes basically everybody from like anti-war left-leaning groups um, through, you know, academic realists. Um, and, and they differ, these groups all differ on how they think about China. Um, you know, for the most part, I would say there is some concern generally about China's rise, but a lot of differences even internally on how you handle that. And so for myself, I'm I'm a realist, right? And so I put myself in the camp of people that, you know, I want us to get out of pointless wars um, in the Middle East because I do think China's a threat. And I think we need to think about that. Now, that doesn't mean I want us to go defend Taiwan, right? There's lots of that are there are gradations here, right? But I am partly talking about restraint and foreign policy elsewhere because I'm concerned about the rise of China. Um, and then there are a group of people that think that, um, you know, many of whom are my colleagues who think that China's rise really isn't that big a deal um, and that we don't need to worry about it that much. And we certainly don't need to do anything on a military footing about it. So, you know, I, I think the, the really the important thing is just that there is a debate inside the restraint camp. There's a debate inside foreign policy more generally. Um, and right now, the U.S. doesn't have a coherent approach towards China. It's all still in the debate stage. Yep, that sounds about right to me. Where where do you personally think about Taiwan in the grand scheme of of U.S. foreign policy strategy? So you sort of alluded to you know you don't want to be going to defending it. So, but wh where would you put that priority, and how should the U.S. in your opinion be thinking about the Taiwan issue? Because I think that really is where the rubber is eventually going to meet the road if we continue on this current trajectory. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I'll, I'll caveat this by saying I'm not an Asia expert. I'm, tr I'm trying to get smarter on it, but I, I am not an Asia expert. But where, you know, where I kind of um, come down on the Taiwan thing is that Taiwan is qualitatively um, and, and quantitatively, but mostly qualitatively different from some of the other countries in East Asia that we might be talking about. So I would commit to defend Japan or South Korea. Absolutely. They're, they're treaty allies, they're important. We can't afford to let China dominate the whole region. Um, but Taiwan is different. Taiwan, for, you know, for historical reasons, is very important to China. It is far more of a core interest for them um, that is likely to lead to a war than Japan or South Korea are. Um, we know China has intentions on Taiwan. We do not know that they have intentions on anything outside that. Um, and then there's also the question just of defense and, and possibility. It is much harder to defend Taiwan than it is to defend those other countries. So for, for all of that, I basically am sort of in the camp of I would not militarily intervene to defend Taiwan. I would happily I would happily arm them, you know, to to be able to mount their own fight. I don't I would, you know, act diplomatically. I would put sanctions on China, but I would not intervene militarily. Um, I would when we get out to that second layer of, of Japan and South Korea and other major Asian countries. Um, so you wouldn't you wouldn't send the Taiwanese um, nuclear powered submarines, for example. <laughs> uh, I think sending any country that has a history of illicit proliferation, um, working nuclear reactors with highly enriched fuel is probably a bad idea. Yeah, um, probably. Um, I'm, I'm glad you brought up allies, though, especially South Korea and Japan, because there's a lot going on there. And that's really the flip side of what we're talking about. Um, you know, a lot of time is a lot and a lot of ink is spent on Russia and China. Um, but another part of what you were talking and you alluded to this at the beginning of the conversation with, um, you know, Washington's address and Jefferson and avo avoiding foreign entanglements. 
I mean, the U.S. really, I mean, we've we've run headlong into foreign entanglements since World War II. We, it started with World War I. We ran away from it for a while. Then the whole world collapsed and we had to do it again. And really since 45, um, we've been up in the world's business and the world has been up in our business in that sense. And the U.S. has profited it, from it greatly. Um, and it, it seemed to me that you were making a clear distinction between the America firsters who likely don't care about alliances at all. And then the restraint folks who that's a much harder conversation and i bring all this up because this episode with the the nuclear subs in australia and france and the uk and the us raises really interesting questions about who are us allies and how is the us going to interact with its allies um so that's an open-ended question but how do you respond to that i find the question of of allies and alliances to be quite difficult um and if you want more of a you know pure restraint perspective you should ask somebody else because i'm a bit of a squish on this issue um you know i i tend to fall in again you know i i would say that i am a realist um you know i think in 1990 i would have been basically aligned with like brent scowcroft and the george hw bush administration so this used to be fairly mainstream thinking um which is that alliances help to bolster US security um, in places where we have concrete interests and um, you know can be a useful tool for helping to build common cause against a common threat like the Soviet Union. Um, where I think alliances have got really out of whack in in the last 30 years is you know NATO expansion in particular um, but but in various other places where we have expanded those alliances expanded those commitments to places where America has no concrete interests um, where we don't benefit from them where in fact they're a liability um, and so that is what I find very problematic about modern alliances um, and then in addition the fact that we increasingly conflate allies and partners Right. Mm. So one is a treaty commitment to defend like the United Kingdom. Um, and then the other is, well, we're partners with Malaysia. Right. What does that really mean in practice? Um, and so I think that blooding of the line has also been really problematic. And if you look at a lot of what's happened in recent years um, with sort of Ukraine and Georgia and Russian reactions, that very ambiguity is a big part of the problem. Um, so I'm not sure that's really a good answer to your question. Um, but, you know, my, my general take on alliances is that they can be useful, but they have to be matched to where the U.S. actually has concrete interests. And so that probably means, you know, burden sharing within NATO to try and shift some of those costs and risks away. It probably means building on the Asian alliances that are actually helpful for what we want to do. And then again, stopping that blooding of the lines wherever we can. That makes me want to ask about NATO, though. So is, is NATO aligned with U.S.? interests? I mean, NATO in some ways is the poster child for expanding things too far. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, is, do you think that NATO is going to be aligned with U.S. interests 10 years from now? I mean, even if you could do more burden sharing, just the idea of Turkey and the United States in the same military alliance, judging on where we've gone in the last five years with U.S.-Turkish relations seems strange to me. So um, what, what is the future of NATO five, 10 years from now from that point of view? I'm a little pessimistic about the future of NATO um, in that I think that either it needs substantial reform or it's going to collapse under its own contradictions, um, potentially at the start of a conflict. Um, and that is, you know, a couple of years back, I got really interested in, you know, how do alliances end? Turns out if you go back in history, they almost all end because a war starts and the people and various parties decide not to support their allies. Hmm. That's how alliances end. Um, and so, you know, that is that is one thing that I, I think is is one potential path 
for NATO is that just the contradictions of, as you say, Turkey and the US and Germany, and we're all in the same alliance, causes it to collapse. Um, I think reform could mitigate those problems. Um, and I, I, you know, I think a couple of big reforms, one, you know, the US basically shifting the burden for European defense back to Europe in all but the most dire of cases, right? So we become the act of last resort, not a first resort. Mm -hmm. And I think that could help a lot. Um, another one is we need a mechanism to expel problematic members. Um, we need to be able to expel Turkey. We need to be able to expel Hungary, right? And other states, if that becomes a problem. Um, and again, if we can't do that, then the alliance sort of slowly weakens from within and I think becomes defunct over time. Um, and, and so, you know, I, but I think without those reforms um, and perhaps in even reforms that sort of reduce NATO down to sub-regional areas, um, you know, where there's more commonalities and interests, I do think that the alliance is probably not destined to, to survive or at least to survive as anything useful in the long run. Yeah, which which obviously raises the question. I mean, this is gonna this podcast will publish in about two weeks, but I'm sure that Emmanuel Macron will still be indignant in two weeks' time, so it'll still be relevant. But um, let, let let me ask about France. Is is France a U.S. ally going forward? A U.S. partner going forward? Where where do you see that relationship going? I mean, it's been one that's been fraught with tension over the years, but fundamentally has always been an allied one. But France is also asserting itself in, in ways around the world and was before the, the sub snafu. So do, do you feel like that relationship has staying power or do you see some drift there? I mean, it's the French, right? And again, I should say here, my, my own bias is that I'm British, right? So I have some, I have some views of the French. Um, you know, I'm, I'm kidding here. Um, but the, the, you know, the, the relationship, the alliance between the United States and France, you know, particularly as part of NATO, has never been uncomplicated. Right. They withdrew from the NATO joint command back in the 60s because they didn't like U.S. decisions. Um, and so, you know, France is the most independent minded of large NATO members. Um, and I think that the real question there is going to be whether France can get other countries to go along with it. The French have been talking for quite some time about building um, an independent European um, military capability. Um, and I think this is something that is in American interests. Um, you know, we, we want them to be capable. We want them to deal with Russia so we don't have to. Um, but ideally, in an ideal world, we'd like it to happen in a way where it's not an abrupt break with the United States, right? Mm -hmm. Where it's not that we piss them off so much that they go off and do their own thing. We would ideally like to stay aligned. And I think we probably will because we have a lot of interests in common. Um, but, you know, we... we want to avoid foolishly or stupidly alienating them over things that aren't that important. And I think, you know, the subs issue last week was was one of those cases where, like, it's a very justifiable decision on foreign policy grounds. It was handled just really, really badly. Like, they didn't tell the French till the morning of the announcement, which is like, I mean, it, it's just bad form. So, you know, if we can avoid doing that kind of thing, I think the way that the French are pushing for you know, autonomous capabilities, I, I think that could be good for us in the long run. Do you have a sense of why they managed that so incompetently? Because I think I felt like one of the things Biden was campaigning on was that he was going to return sanity to the foreign po policy establishment. And I mean, a basic briefer should have known like weeks ago that just springing this on the French without any warning was going to be a really bad idea. It's, it's kind of shocking to me that nobody 
raised their hand and said, this is going to get really bad. But that's what happened. And that feels like a, a really, that feels like an indictment of dysfunction in the U.S. foreign policy establishment more than anything else. It's, it's certainly not a, it's certainly not a vote of confidence, right? I mean, so as I understand it, the concern was that because it was Australia that was breaking the contract with France, that the U.S. left notification up to the Australians, then it turned out the Australians didn't do it. And so that was sort of a last minute scramble. Um, that's hardly an excuse, though. You know, I think, again, um, I think, you know, the U.S. really shouldn't be that naive as saying, you know, well, the French aren't going to like it, so we just won't tell them. That is that is not good diplomacy. Um, I do wonder the extent to which some of this has been driven by the fact that we still don't have a lot of our defense and foreign policy appointees in key positions actually through the nomination um, and confirmation process yet. So the Senate, in particular, Ted Cruz, but, but you know, several senators are holding up appointments. Um, and so a lot of the people that are doing the work in the Biden administration are either sort of non-confirmable appointees or they're people at lower levels in, in the State Department, in DOD. So, you know, I think that's a concern, right? And I feel like a fully staffed out um, administration might have done a little better on those issues. Yeah. Um, did you, what significance, if any, did you ascribe to New Zealand and Canada not being part of the agreement? I feel like the the French melodrama has obscured the fact that, you know, it, it was only three eyes, not five eyes that were participating in that deal. D does that tell you anything or do you think it's just like, is it insignificant? How, how important should we benchmark their absence from the deal? The New Zealanders, the Kiwis, were never going to participate. Um, they have a nuclear weapons free zone. It actually caused the collapse of a previous alliance treaty between the US and Australia and New Zealand, um, the question of nuclear subs. And most people don't remember that these days unless they specifically work on that issue. Um, but yeah, so the New Zealanders would, were never going to do that. They may even not allow the Australian subs to transit um, Kiwi waters. That's, that's how strongly they feel about nuclear power in all its forms. Um, the Canadians that are trickier one, and I'm, I'm not really an expert in Canadian politics, um, but as I understand it, they've been very hesitant to engage with the like pivot to Asia part of, of Biden's foreign policy and Trump's foreign policy before that. And so that is probably some of what's going on here. Um, but yeah, as you say, it's, it's an interesting combo, right? It's the It seems like it was a bilateral US-Australia um, contract into which the British were bought, brought partly because of the interconnections between um, the US and the UK defense establishments and partly because they had some of the technology that was needed to make the deal work. Um, yeah, and it, it's it's also just such an interesting question because, you know, as we're talking about US allies and alliances, I feel like one of the key points that is always made is that China, for instance, really doesn't have alliances. I mean, they have a treaty relationship with North Korea. Maybe they would stick up for Pakistan, although even that I think would be probably a pretty large stretch for the Chinese. But they seem to be listening to George Washington's advice. They don't want these kind of permanent relationships anywhere else, or maybe they can't get them. I'm not sure. But I'm sure also decision makers in Beijing are more than happy to see these frays in the U.S. alliance network, whether it's in the Philippines or with Canada uh, or in Europe itself. Um, I, I imagine that that is probably something that the Chinese and the Russians are are in well discreetly supporting behind the scenes, at least hoping for. Is is that fair? I mean, certainly we know the Russians do that. It's a big part of what they've been doing for the last ten or fifteen years. Um, and and you know, particularly on the Russian point of view, it's because they benefit from a disunited front against them. Um, you know, so 
the things that they've been doing, sort of meddling in you know, meddling in elections in the West, um, engaging in sort of disinformation campaigns, um, and then working with governments like Hungary that might be a bit more more uh, predisposed to to sort of be friendly towards Russia. You know, those those sort of do help them to drive a wedge between countries. Um, but I do sometimes think that influence is, is overstated. Um, you know, many of the things that Russia does, it's able to do because the divisions are already there, right? So Nord Stream 2, Russia was able to, to get that project completed because the Germans really wanted it. And the German business community was very keen on finishing this pipeline. They had good, strong reasons for trying to complete that project with Russia, despite everything else. Um, you know, Russia was able to engage in election meddling here because we had a mess at home. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that the role that other countries play in trying to drive a wedge between the U.S. and its allies is is often overstated. Um, and I think the corollary is in Washington, we dramatically underestimate the actual differences of opinion that we have, even with countries that we're allied with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Um, well, let's pull back a little bit um, and look a little bit towards the future. So, I mean, you you mentioned that you've been impressed a little bit or, or Biden's your expectations for Biden's foreign policy so far have been exceeded, but he's also done relatively little. Um, he, he's basically just been trying to keep things as they were. I wouldn't say he's taken any particularly strong stances. He, for instance, hasn't withdrawn sanctions from Cuba. He hasn't withdrawn sanctions from Venezuela. They're trying to get the Iran nuclear deal going, I guess, but there's no progress there in part because of issues with Iran. Um, Koreans on both sides of the peninsula are now testing missiles. So he's going to have to deal with that fairly soon. You can't just keep that simmering on the same pot for the entire time. So where do you think we go from here for the, for the rest of the, of this first term of the Biden administration? Okay. So, I mean, so there's the good bits of the Biden administration and we talked about those already, right? The withdrawal from Afghanistan, the apparent intention to dial down the war on terror more broadly, though it's not really being done yet. Um, you know, I, I think a realization that the U.S. sort of can't always do everything, which seems to have been absorbed in the Biden administration. Um, and that, that's all good. Um, I, I think even the sort of downplaying of, you know, so they initially announced the summit for democracy, um, the democracies versus autocracies framing. Um, and you still see that in the rhetoric, but the on the practical side, they have leaned into that far less than they might have. So that's that's all good. Um, but I think on the negative side, you're right. I think particularly progressives that were pushing the sort of Biden on foreign policy in the campaign have been quite disappointed in his unwillingness to burn political capital to achieve some of their priorities. Um, and so that's things like, um, you know, maybe um, taking sanctions off of some of these countries um, and then particularly follow through with Iran. So it's possible we still get back into the JCPOA, but the Biden team has almost certainly missed the window at this point, at least missed the window for an uncomplicated return to the deal. Um, and, and, you know, domestic politics on both sides are, are sort of complicating that further. Um, so, you know, I mean, I there are definitely some downsides and definitely some bad parts of Biden's foreign policy so far. Um, but the reason I say why overall I'm encouraged and why I'm still relatively hopeful for the rest of his term is I think Biden's big sort of contribution realization is that the U.S. doesn't have to solve every problem around the world. Um, and, and that's mostly because he wants to focus on domestic politics, right? Um, 
But I actually think it's a good thing because I think that's a big part of the reason why we have so much overstretch in recent years. Um, and so to the extent that Biden is not, I think, jumping into absolutely every trouble spot to try and provide a US solution, I think that's a good step for the US towards becoming a slightly more um, hands-off superpower, right? One that can live in a world where it's no longer head and shoulders above every other country, but is instead sort of first among equals um, among a lot of countries that have some stake or interest in the international system. Um, you know, and he may prove me wrong. He may pivot to China really aggressively and this could all go the way of a new Cold War. But right now, I'm fairly encouraged by what I see. Do you think that that trajectory is sort of how the U.S. will behave over the course of the next decade, no matter who is in the White House? Is it is it the, just the structure of the world is making it so that you can't have a U.S. president who's coming in to, to say, do whatever they want to do? Um, and in that sense, Biden is a precursor of what to come. Or do you think that we could hypothetically have an election, like let's say Biden is a one-term president for the sake of argument. Could we have an America first to come right back in and blow everything up again? And the U.S. is just going to be on this pendulum until it resolves some way down the line. Yeah, this is um, this is a really good question. I mean, it's actually something I'm sort of wrestling with right now because I'm trying to write um, trying to write about the broader book draft in U.S. foreign policy. And one of the problems actually is that domestic politics is really important right now in determining what the US does, um, you know, in, in a number of ways, right? That uh, foreign policy has become increasingly partisan and polarized. And so there is this pendulum swing from administration to administration you didn't used to see. Um, and then there's this risk of domestic democratic backsliding, right? Um, so, and, you know, I think even if we ignore that latter risk, which is, is not insignificant at this point, right? After what we've seen in the last year. Um, but even if we ignore that as sort of outside the scope here, and we just talk about that partisan swing between administrations, um, you know, you could see a scenario in which Biden has four years in which he pursues a, a relatively modest version of liberal internationalism, right? Dials down some of the more ambitious war on terror stuff, um, you know, pivots towards China a bit, but doesn't let it get too out of hand, tries to rebuild um, some treaties, get back into multilateral institutions, um, work with other countries on climate, stuff like that. And then four years down the line, um, you know, Tom Cotton comes into office as president um, and immediately withdraws from all of those, just like Trump did from the JCPOA um, and pivots much more strongly towards China. Um, you know, and perhaps sends troops back to Afghanistan or to Libya or Syria. And, you know, I think that's not sustainable over 20, 30 years, but it's perfectly sustainable in the short term with diminishing returns. Um, and the problem is that if we're even worried about that as a possibility, other countries are definitely worrying about it. And it makes it more difficult today to get them to see the US as a credible actor that can make credible commitments. Um, because it could change in four years. And so I think that's the biggest problem facing U.S. foreign policy, and it's not one that foreign policy specialists can fix. Um, so that's that's incredibly terrifying and depressing, I'm afraid. Yeah, and I mean, to your point, I mean, um, this I imagine that this probably a lot of listeners weren't aware of um, former Vice President Pence going to Budapest and the comments that he made at the demographic summit or whatever it was there. But, you know, going to Hungary and praising Hungary and some of these other EU skeptical 
um, countries that are, I mean, we, we, need, we don't need to legislate whether they are democratic backsliding or not. The EU accuses them democratic backsliding. So there is some kind of internal conflict there. And you've got a former U.S. vice president going and lending his name and credibility to supporting those voices. Um, so I, I think you're, I think you're right on. It's, it, it seems like a very deep and um, pernicious is too pejorative a word, but it's there. It, it doesn't feel like it's going away and it doesn't feel like Biden has exercised anything right now. It, it almost feels just like a, a very unsteady um, hit. He, 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 he was able to hit the pause button that, that there was no sort of systemic change just because Biden came into office. Yeah, I mean, like, I know, you know, you do some political risk work, and I'm sure some of your listeners do political risk work. And we used to mostly discount political risk on the United States side. But I don't think we can anymore. Um, And that's what makes US foreign policy really uncertain going forward. um, Because there's this risk of sort of dramatic shifts between parties. And there's this risk of, you know, the US itself might become an illiberal actor in world affairs. And they're fairly small risks. But, you know, the impact they would have if they happened is such that you really do have to take it quite seriously. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I tell my clients when I start working with them right away is that the U.S. is the source of the most risk in the world, full stop, and it's not close right now. Um, there are definitely other risks, but like it's it's the United States. The United States is the most predictable. The United States is the one. And it's it's also reflective of some of the good things about the United States. We do have real democracy. We do have real electoral change. People with different positions come in in four years or eight years from now. Um, and that's not true in a lot of countries. Um, you know, Vladimir Putin can do what he does because he gets to be president of Russia for as long as he wants. She gets to do what he does because he knows, you know, barring that he has a heart attack or something, he will be there in 20 years. That's just not true in the United States. And there, there are pros and cons to both of those things. Um, two more things I want to, oh yeah, sorry, go ahead, please. No, sorry. I was just going to say to, you know, so just to bring it back to that, that conversation we had at the start about this article and about, you know, restraint and the future of U.S. foreign policy. Um, you know, I think one of the ways in which that could be mitigated is by pushing for a somewhat more restrained or realist U.S. foreign policy, because if you dial down some of the toolkit that is available to presidents, you you make it a little less likely that we can have these huge swings um, with really adverse effects for the world. And so, you know, for myself, that's one reason why I think trying to build a consensus around a less activist foreign policy um, might be helpful in the long run. Yes, and it would be wonderful if Congress woke up and realized that it has significant power to exert over the American executive and that we don't have to be stuck with the decisions that were made in the 60s and the 70s. Like We're, we're much wiser than, than that now. We're not afraid of nuclear war. We know what the Gulf of Tonkin resolution was. It feels like we're stuck in our ways. And in some sense, it feels like Congress is happy to... Um, you know, be on soapboxes and dance around political issues and things like that. But I mean, Congress still has the power of the purse. They can re- they can restrain the White House anytime they want. And you would think that there would be bipartisan consensus to do that. Um, but there really isn't. Yeah, you know, there was a uh, Congress typically tries to prevent votes from even coming up. They have in many ways ab- abrogated their their responsibility to even weigh in on issues of war and peace. Um, you know, yesterday, or I guess a couple of weeks ago at this point, you know, there was um, that the NDAA, the, the National Defense Authorization Act, um, was going through Congress. And there's this period where they just throw as many amendments as they can at it and see what sticks. Um, and I found it notable that an amendment, a throwaway amendment, but from Jamal Bowman up in New York, that would have required Congress to take a vote um, if the president wanted to keep troops in Syria 
which you know is this weird deployment where no one really knows what they're there doing um that amendment failed by quite a large number because congress just didn't want to weigh in even when it came to the question of a very questionable military deployment so i mean that's a problem i'm not sure i see how to really improve it in the near term yeah certainly not in the near term i mean you would you would have to have enough congressmen who are willing to to take the responsibility to do that sort of thing but i mean a great point is that you know the united states has been fighting wars since 45 none of which have actually been declared wars i mean it's it's all you know, presidential privilege, and it's it's both that you know both parties, politicians on both sides of the aisle have have been perpetuating it a long time. Um, Emma, before I let you go, sort of two more off the wall questions. The first is um, some friends and I were debating this last week, and I thought I would throw it to an expert like you. Um, can you think of a U.S. intervention that went well? Actually, so I don't have to necessarily do it. I, I got this example from Alan Cooperman, okay, who is a, is a scholar who studies interventions. Um, basically, there was an intervention um, back in, I think it was Liberia, but in, the, in, in Africa back in the 1990s, where we effectively dropped, um, you know, a small number of Marines between some soldiers and some civilians. And we protected the civilians, and then we took the Marines back out, and it helped to resolve the situation. Um, another good example would be um, the Yazidi question under mm. Barack Obama, right? The Yazidis were fleeing. They were this ethnic group in Iraq. They were fleeing from ISIS, um, and we sent um, helicopters to drop them supplies in the mountains. They dropped them, you know, blankets and food so they didn't freeze to death. And that helped those people get through the mountains and escape to Turkey, um, right? But you'll see that in both of those cases, they weren't big, um, showy interventions where we tried to topple a regime or anything. They were using the military to achieve very small humanitarian aims in a place where we could achieve the thing we were actually trying to achieve. Um, right. So they, they weren't about rebuilding states or nations. They weren't about resolving civil wars. It was almost entirely just about some humanitarian protection where we could manage it. Um, so th those are the like couple of small examples. Um, but I, I struggle to find a bigger example than those that was successful. The Yazidi one is difficult because the, the Yazidis were only in that situation because we intervened in Iraq. So I, I have trouble with that one because it feels true. like why that's part of that. Is, is Serb Serbia was the one that was most, I, I had to stop and think about the most, and I, is the one I guess you, I could make the best argument for. Do, do you see a downside to the US NATO-led intervention in, in Serbia? Are there, are there downsides to that that I'm not appropriately considering? Um, well, I mean, so yeah, so the, the, um, it was pretty successful on the humanitarian front. It was pretty successful on the political front in terms of the broader geopolitical ramifications. The, the Kosovo intervention was pretty bad. Um, we can trace so scholars that study Russian and Chinese foreign policy. Um, you can trace back the roots of those states sort of turning on the U.S. and saying we really need to be worried about the U.S. to the Kosovo intervention. Hmm. In the case of the Russians, um, we actually almost, this is such a bizarre story, we almost came uh, to blows with the Russians. Um, Yeltsin sent a bunch of Russian paratroopers to seize the Pristina airport. Um, and the military command actually ordered American and British troops to fire on the Russians. Um, and the only reason they didn't do it um, is because of James Blunt, the singer who at the time was in the military, who said, no, don't do it. Otherwise, we would have had a shooting conflict with the Russians in Kosovo. And then there was with the Chinese, we accidentally bombed their embassy. Mm -hmm. But most people in Beijing didn't believe it was accidental. So, you know, again, 
those aren't like the main point of the intervention. I think you could argue that the central point of the intervention, the central goal of the intervention was achieved. Um, but the tangential stuff, the fallout from it, um, definitely made our lives more difficult in other areas. Yeah. And, and your point about that being the moment where both Russia and China really started to think seriously about the threat that the U.S. posed to them and whether that, I mean, maybe we would have gotten to this situation that we're in now without it, yeah. but um, that, that's thought provoking food for thought. Um, last question. I can't not ask you this with, with the accent that you have. Um, what's, what's the future of the UK look like? Do you think the UK is still the UK five, 10 years from now? How are you feeling? Well, uh, I hear there is no petrol. That's gas for the American liter li listeners. That's gas for the American listeners. I hear there's there's no petrol in the station, so you can't use your car to get anywhere right now. Um, that's on top of a carbon dioxide shortage mm -hmm. from about a month ago, so you couldn't get fizzy sodas or certain hospital equipment in the UK. Um, and these sort of rolling shortages are all the result of Brexit. Um, and so the UK has not seen like major economic impacts from Brexit, but it's seeing lots and lots of small impacts, shortages, of imports, difficulties obtaining things, um, none of which are, are sort of making life any better for anyone in the UK. Um, and I am fairly pessimistic um, about the survival of the UK as a large scale enterprise. So um, if you can't tell from my accent, I'm Scottish originally, I came, came from Glasgow. Um, and, you know, sentiment in Scotland has swung back in favour of independence. Um, you know, it's still fairly narrow, but it is now a majority of those polled um, where, you know, a, a decade ago, the referendum was it was soundly defeated at referendum, the notion of independence. Um, and so, um, you know, the fact that Scotland voted overwhelmingly not to exit the EU and then the UK did anyway, that's really driving those tensions. Um, and then we see similar issues in Northern Ireland where there's all these debates about the border. Um, and so I am just not, I'm not optimistic. Um, I think if the UK manages to stick together over the next decade, it's gonna do so as a diminished actor in world affairs. And that's probably not good for the US either. Would you say it's in Scotland's interest to leave or that it's one of these nationalist, emotional, visceral things that it's sort of death by a million cuts and the interests don't matter at a certain point, especially if you get into a referendum type situation? Um, yeah, I mean, I was a very strong opponent of, of independence back when it came up for referendum. The last time I'm still an opponent of, of referendum, I think Scotland is a part of the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we benefit substantially from those trade links. Now, you know, could you make an argument that if Scotland were to leave and join the European Union, it might benefit from that more? Perhaps. Um, but I think that's pretty unrealistic for a couple of reasons. Um, one is that the Scottish government bases a lot of its predictions on um, sort of the current price of oil and of continuing oil extraction and the fields are declining. So that's obviously a little misleading. Um, and then the other one is that there are countries in the European Union that have said they will never let Scotland in because they don't want separatist countries getting in. The Spanish with Catalonia is the most obvious. Um, and so again, I, I think an independent Scotland might find it very difficult to get into the EU and that would leave us isolated from basically everybody. So I I, I really oppose independence because I just don't see, um, you know, I, I think there's maybe more reason now than there was a decade ago. I still don't think it's good enough. Okay. Well, 
thank you for humoring me on those two last curveball questions. And um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And when your book proposal is done and it's out, uh, I hope you'll come back on and, and share some more insights with us. Great. Glad, thanks so much for, for having me. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Perch Pod. If you haven't already, you can find us under the name The Perch Pod on every major streaming platform. Subscribe for downloads, follow us, all that good stuff. Uh, if you have feedback on this episode or on any episode, you can email us at info at perchperspectives.com. I can't promise that we'll reply to every single email that comes in, but I read every single one that comes in and I love hearing from listeners, so please don't be shy. Uh, you can find us on social media. Our Twitter handle is at Perchspectives because we love a good pun. Uh, we're also on LinkedIn under Perch Perspectives. Most importantly, please check out our website. It's www.perchperspectives.com. Besides being able to find out more information about the company, the services that we provide, and even to read samples of our work, you can also sign up for our twice a week newsletter on the most important political developments in the world. It's free. All you have to do is provide your email address. And even if you don't want to do that, you can read the post for free on our blog. Thanks again for listening. Please spread the word about Perch Perspectives and the Perch Pod, and we'll see you out there.